guys, welcome back to All Bark No Dice, the Fundamentals Tabletop Talk Show. This week, my guest is Kira Magran, a tabletop game designer and writer and all-around cool person who has done a lot of really interesting independent RPG work, um, has written about RPGs, and most recently was a contributor to Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, the most recent release from Dungeons & Dragons, um, a book that I really loved, and so I was really excited when Kira agreed to come on. So welcome to the show, Kira. Thank you. Thank you for saying I make cool things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've, you know, I've been, you know, really into, you know, the work you've been doing for a little while. Um, Thank you. Uh, something something is wrong here was something that made a most anticipated Gen Con list of mine one year, the oh. year it came out, um, because <laughs> I was looking, awesome. I was looking through games and I was looking through games and looking through all the ones that are coming out, you know, I think it was 20, 2019 maybe or 2018. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh my God. I don't know. <laughs> it feels like 12 years Sometime. ago. Even though it was <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometime in the ancient past. And I saw it, and I looked, and I read about it, and I uh, put it on that list. So it was, you know, I, I really, and then I ended up, I picked up a copy, and uh, and got a chance to look through it, and it's a really, really cool thing. So I've been interested, and then seeing that you worked on Ravenloft was an, a very, very cool thing. I mean, it was a fantastic cast of, of writers on, on the book. We'll get to that. I would definitely want to talk about that, but... First, I'm going to talk about just how you got involved with with tabletop and what um, sparked your interest in, in in tabletop RPGs and, and gaming. Yeah, I mean, gosh, I was I started gaming as a teenager, right? And mm -hmm. um, I'm like 40 now, so <laughs> <laughs> I've pretty much been gaming that entire time, um, and just so many different games. Uh, so it's, you know, kind of a long story, but I, I got into it. My dad, um, used to go to hobby stores, um, you know, with like trains and like, you know, you can build your own airplanes, like those kinds of hobby stores. Um, and they had like a gaming section and in that gaming section was Vampire the Masquerade. <laughs> and at the time I was like super into interview the vampire, you know, I was like going in, was beginning my goth phase. And um, so I was like, what is this? And that's kind of how I got into it. I tried to run it for, um, I can't remember what year it was my birthday, but maybe like my 14th or 15th birthday. I can't remember. Um, and for like a group of my girlfriends and we failed miserably at it, but it was very, <laughs> very fun. Um, so that was actually like one of the first games I played. I also played like an old board game of D&D &D with my brother when I was very young, but I don't remember what that was. I just remember liking the dragons on it. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, there's that's a lot kind of, of weird that's little kind of games. my beginnings. What's that? Starting, it's starting, it's, there's a lot of weird little releases, you know, from TSR and that are just lost to time because, you know, <laughs> it was the 80s or the 90s or, you know, whatever. Um... <laughs> Uh, but it it's it, I I'm always interested in how what what someone's first game was, uh, because yeah. oftentimes it, it can uh, color their work. Um, mm -hmm. 
Uh, sometimes it doesn't, but... Yeah, I mean, I played World of Darkness for, you know, 10, 15 years. Like, I played it... I really love horror, so mm -hmm. it really just kind of spoke to me, which is, you know, <laughs> leads into just, like, horror games in general for me. Like, Something is Wrong Here is Uncanny Horror, um, you know... I didn't, I didn't do, like, the fantasy d and I did the horror D&D book mm -hmm. over here on Ravenloft, you know. So that's definitely, it's, it's kind of more to my taste in general, I think. I'm curious what about horror on the tabletop is really attractive to you, because it's not, it's, it's, this has been a recurring question of mine, because I love horror, everything with horror. Um, nice. But it is, <laughs> yeah, every, I mean, Van Richten is one of my favorite books that's come out, and yeah, um, I love uh, vampire and I love uh, you know Quietus. Um, mm -hmm. a really good. I worked one. on Quietus we too. Worked on that. Yeah, um, you know I love horror and I love books and movies and things. Obviously, um, but it's a hard thing to nail on the tabletop. I've found it is, um, and I'm wondering, you know, what sort of draws you to it or how you get it to work. I mean, there's so many different kinds of horror, right? Um, like, I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm a huge horror nerd. Like, I've seen so many horror movies. I still watch them. I love American Horror Story. It's, like, so kitschy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I think uh, uh, it really kind of depends what kind of horror you're going for in a game. Um, I think that with tabletop role-playing games, it is hard to be scared. Um, because it is hard, and hard to scare people. Because it is difficult to get into an immersive, like, mindset that I think really allows that to happen, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think you can share scary concepts or scary descriptions or scenarios, but then not, then not necessarily scare someone. So, you know, if, I think if you're going for scary horror, like, really, like, I'm this really scared me type of thing, I don't know that that works successfully all the time. Um, I think it's more successful in like, uh, you know, kind of sharing the mood of it, the aesthetics, um, you know, the violence, the, the idea of kind of like outsiders or marginalized characters being at the center of the story. Yeah. Um, you know, monsters, uh, monster metaphors, you know, for social issues, <laughs> Uh, and, and like, uh, feelings of dread or unease, I think those are easier to, I think, to capture. So I think it depends, like, kind of what genre of horror you're going for. I think, I think those are easier. And something is wrong here. I do that a lot. I focus more on the uncanny feeling and the dread, the dreadful tension feeling, um, which you can do pretty well with pacing in a, in a role-playing game. It's, it's interesting, you know, having, you've worked on, uh, all this, you know, I love the, the independent work is what a lot of your output is. As you know, a lot of people who are in RPGs, they do. I think now that the DMs Guild is around, a lot of the energy for people who do independent work is going into that some ways. But mm -hmm. Itch.io has opened up a lot of room for people to contribute. Um, and, you know, last episode, I talked to Jay Dragon, who was a big, you know, who's a big Itch.io evangelist. And, um, yeah. I love that you have had that success with there. And I'm, I'm wondering when it comes to, so we'll talk about something is wrong here, I guess is what I'm trying to get to and <laughs> where, where that game came from and how the, um, 
having mentioned it earlier, it's something I really love. Uh, I want to know, you know, where did that come from? Where did, uh, what was the process like on that compared to maybe some of the, because it's a little bit, it's not very traditional in any way other than the fact that you're playing a game where you take on roles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, you know, I got into role-playing game design and hanging out with designers more at conventions, I guess, that were independent or indie, um, or just making small press, I guess. Uh, like, I don't know, like 10, 10, 15 years ago, like way before Itch.io existed, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and kind of talking with them and just getting really nerdy about how to do things. You know, I was, um, I used to hang out with the Burning Wheel guys and Nathan Paletta, who did Worldwide Wrestling and Annalise and Emily Carabas, Epidiah, Ravishall, you know, like all the, all kind of that generation, I feel like, um, of mm -hmm. independent game designers was who I was hanging out with at the time. And so there was, um, as we kind of progressed through our design processes and kind of like working out like what narrative structures we wanted and what design aesthetics that kind of cadre liked, I guess, which is kind of different from what's happening now. Of course, that always happens with design. I mean, I'm like an art, a visual art person. I went to art college. So oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have like kind of like this understanding of design. I approach game design with that uh, knowledge, I think, or that understanding of design. Um, and uh, like we, we kind of moved into this phase of um, freeform and LARP and like Nordic LARP. Um, and incorporating a lot of those concepts into tabletop role-playing games as well. Uh, and that is kind of actually where something is wrong here came from. It, it is kind of like a mix of, um, uh, kind of like independent tabletop role-playing game, uh, one-shot concepts, like this is a game you play in one night type of idea instead of a campaign. Um, and also like kind of loose, accessible, easy to kind of pick up, um, and go rules, uh, in addition to like kind of an immersive, more kind of like, um, freeform or theater experience. So it's, it's kind of like a mix of all those things. And that makes it, um, yeah, I mean, there's no dice, right? It, you, mm -hmm. you, it's very like, uh, light in that sense. Um, so it's like, it's like a cross between a tabletop and a LARP kind of. Yeah, and that's it, 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 those of you who haven't seen it. It's got you know it, it has some props. It has uh, you know music you're supposed to play. It has um, some really interesting stuff being done there. But like you said, it doesn't have dice. And um, I, I think I think it's funny that that's kind of there's a lot of debate when it comes to handling of social uh, interactions in in an RPG um, and handling this like heavier conceptual stuff, interpersonal things and how I think I saw someone post on, on Twitter, something about, um, you know, spending a whole session trying to like, like wooing this is this like an NPC and then failing a love role. <laughs> and so they can't, so the whole thing blows up. <laughs> um, yeah. something that, you know, you don't really run into with the game like that. Yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting because I think it is very cool to mechanize social interactions in a role-playing game. Like, why not? Why mechanize just, like, physical actions? Um, 
you know, because you're telling a story. <laughs> and, like, the story contains all kinds of interactions, you know, between and among characters. Uh, so I do, I do think it's cool to, like, mechanize those social interactions, but rolling for love is a silly way to do it, uh, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I think how you mechanize those interactions is really key. Like, a lot of my games that um, I make uh, that kind of riff off of Power by the Apocalypse rules, um, you know, they, they actually don't even have um, violence as an option. It's like, um, you know, use tech, uh, have feelings... Do, do a talking, um, and all of those you roll for, and then you have varying degrees of success and outcomes for them. And the idea is kind of like, well, you can't kind of be attached to how another person is going to react to you. Like, <laughs> yeah. in, real, in real life either, you can only control yourself, right? Uh, so, so when you're rolling for those outcomes, it's kind of like, well, you roll to flirt with someone. Um, how, how they respond is up to them, but you are very flirtatious. <laughs> and I think there's like an, a level of consent involved there too with social interactions, right? That a lot of, a lot of role-playing games, I'd say especially a lot of kind of like older or traditional games kind of miss out on, I think, on that nuance. Yeah, well, and that's something, you know, I, I think you've, you, you talk about and... Um, it's a it's a key part at the start of most of your games is that consent question um, and yeah. the safety tools, um, which I think is something that we're really getting a lot of now. Thankfully, um, that's becoming way more standard in tabletop. Yeah, it's interesting. It kind of t- I feel like I've seen the evolution of it. It took like ten years. <laughs> like it's pretty wild. Um, just kind of to see that evolve. And even before then, there were safety rules. It's just they weren't as, um, I think, universally accepted or used, which I feel like speaks a lot for how our, how the gaming industry and people who play games has um, recently, ha- has kind of moved forward. Like, mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's a fantastic thing that so many people are aware of these rules. I think some of that, you know, might might come from the the visibility that tabletop games have and was with streaming and things and there's been uh, there's been incidents I won't go into detail um, yeah. there's been incidents with um, that contract being broken on like streams and on videos oh sure um, and, yeah, I've seen them yeah <laughs> um, and uh, so people are suddenly going oh wait no we should definitely get consent before we do some of this stuff. Um, Mm-hmm. Which again is great. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think in general in America, anyway, um, there is more discussion about consent in the culture. You know, things like the Me Too movement, and um, you know, just general, generally more discussion about um, about social issues in general. I think because the the culture at large is changing. You know, the gaming culture is changing with it. And we are kind of like small in comparison, you know, like tabletop role-playing games. There's a lot of people, but it is, it is kind of a small group of the population. But I think a lot of the people that I see anyway, I see people trying and I see a majority of people wanting to change. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, well, I know you're, you're also another thing that you're a part of um, that's on that, that change bent um, is you also work with more seats at the table, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so how'd you get involved with, with them? And can you talk a little bit about, about that project for people who might be a little unfamiliar? 
Oh, sure. So um, me and Ash Kreider actually came up with the idea. Oh, I love um, Ash. Be- yeah, Ash is great. <laughs> I've, I've met Ash a few times. <laughs> Ash is great. <laughs> I've known Ash for, for a, a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess over the years, we've been on a lot of different um, kind of social activist uh, projects and groups together. Um, you know, we were both on gaming as women back when that was a thing. Uh, and... Um, so we were kind of talking about, you know, like, how can we, how can we like shine more of a light on, um, you know, people, designers and gaming who are, who belong to like marginalized genders. And cause like a lot of the, um, th- there's a lot of us, but we don't get as much spotlight, um, just because of, you know, general sexism and homophobia yeah. in mar- in marketing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that we, we kind of created this idea. That's how we created More Seats at the Table, which is just a newsletter that we put out every two weeks that um, features projects that are currently running, um, like Kickstarters, new games, slightly older games, podcasts, streams, you know, kind of anything um, where people of marginalized genders are creating that work. Um, and it's really cool. It's a cool resource. It's free. We have a Patreon if you want to help us do the work. <laughs> That's super appreciated. But um, Ash is actually no longer a part of the project. They uh, they had other... They were overwhelmed with other work. Um, so it's yeah. me, Misha, and um, Kim who currently do it. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's... <laughs> everyone's juggling too much and dealing with so much that, you know, that's, that's happening. Um but yeah, I'll definitely link that below because it's a really it's a really cool thing, um, and uh, it's something that I really um, it's really important when it comes to RPGs because I remember when I went to when I worked my first Gen Con at Press, I did a couple interviews with with uh, I talked to like Ash and I talked to like Crystal Fraser and I talked to. Um, several other you know tabletop creators um cool and it was funny because i kept asking them this question about you know what what do you think it's like now that our rpgs are getting less male and less white and the response i kept getting seriously from everybody was oh they're not (laughs) we've always been here (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly Yeah, that's exactly the case. It's it's like any other industry, you know, it's the same in film and in books, you know, it's just uh, the best way to help it be less centered around like straight cis men, right, is to support these other communities and support us um, and like highlight us. So yeah, that's, that's just the most important thing. So yeah, that's what we created that tool for. Like, how can we make it easier for people to find this stuff, you know? I know there's also you do have a some interesting themes of when it comes to um, I know there's, there's there's a nature trend through your games, um, so so just thinking about you've got I believe four games that are only you right or is there more that I can't see? <laughs> oh, um, um, that's probably correct. Got, uh, I mean, so like a cozy <laughs> den, something is wrong here. Like the two that. Um, you know, I, I knew about, um, yeah. um, I didn't know about moose trip or body hack. Um, well, I think I've seen yeah. you talk about body hack before. Oh yeah. So those are my four on itch.io, but I actually have some older games that are just mine as well. Like I have, um, twilight dames, which is a fate game. Um, 
where it's based on like lesbian pulp novels. <laughs> and I have one called Till Dawn, um, which is kind of like you play like drag race like performers in, in the near future uh, going kind of on like this festival circuit and you have like cybernetic like costumes. It's pretty wild. <laughs> and uh, I also have Mobilize, which is a LARP about um, uh, lesbians in World War II who were in America who worked in mo uh, motor pools, like fixing and repairing cars. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah, yeah. I have, I have like a lot of older stuff. I, I actually... So I, need, I need to highlight it probably more. I, they're, they're, they're part of kind of other collections, you know, um, yeah. or highlighted by other companies or groups. So it's kind of like not on my itch.io, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, if I went through and, and listed out everything that you've, you've worked on, it I mean, I, it's, you've done so many cool stuff. Like you mentioned Quietus, you've worked on Blue Rose and you've worked on, uh, you know, you were in the, uh, hashtag feminism anthology that I, that I, I really love, um, as, as an exercise. So you've been part of this experimentation with, with the genre for a while, like you said. Um, but yeah, back to the sort of my original thinking, you know, you have that, well, you have that net, you have a nature thread and you also have, there's a, definitely a cyberpunk thread going through your games and through your work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I recently got pretty obsessed with nature. <laughs> Yeah, I believe you've I, been uh, posting uh, the adventures of a um, a furry creature in your backyard. I remember that being a a thread yeah. for a while. <laughs> I actually got a trail cam so that I could more properly record the groundhogs in my backyard because <laughs> they're a delight and I love them. Um, <laughs> And, and I got into photography, like nature photography. I have fibromyalgia. Um, and for a while, walking walking is one of the only things that kind of helps um, my like cope with my pain. And so while I was walking, I go to you know these forests and I take my camera with me and then I got into nature photography. And now I like know all the birds in my region and when they're migrating. <laughs> like, um, you know, kind of fell down that rabbit hole. And I also got an, into ecology and conservation a lot. Um, and I'm recently vegan for three for three years now. Okay. So kind of a lot of that coalesced into me um, really trying to explore concepts of um, like social ecology, like how our how our culture interacts with um, the natural world around us and the conservation because of, you know, the approaching sixth six extinction, you know, climate change, et cetera, et cetera. So, so those things kind of got incorporated into my games as well. I just kickstarted a game actually um, called Fly Softly, which is uh, you play monarch butterfly human hybrids. Um, and it's kind of like uh, you travel and you kind of help people on your way and you help plant seeds for milkweed to grow so that you can protect your butterfly kin. So that's kind of the concept. It's it's interesting the way that you work with the with with the body in your work. Um, yeah. You know, you've mentioned the you know, you just do it with the butterflies and with your snake lesbians in a cozy den. Um, and of course in Cyberpunk that's like a core concept um 
is the the use of the body and the the changing of it, whether it's integrating it with technology in that case. Um, so that that's a really fascinating fascinating idea and something that tabletop games definitely could do more with. Well, thank you for noticing that. That is, um, that's a very observant and an awesome compliment. Um, <laughs> I, I, do, I do actually really care about the body. Um, uh, when, when, like when I was in art school, one of the things that got me into drawing was, um, like drawing comic book characters. Um, and I really fell in love with figure drawing. I did a lot of figure drawing and painting in, in school. And then I kind of moved into jewelry because it's like wearable. Uh, it's body modification, right? And body decoration. Um, I love body things in general. Like I have a lot of tattoos, you know, I'm into, you know, I'm genderqueer. I like the ideas of playing with, you know, the presentation and the movement of your body. I just actually just got into dancing. <laughs> and oh, so yeah. all this kind of, all this kind of translates kind of into into my games in that sense. It is a common thread and that I like ideas that explore our relationships with our bodies and with other other people's bodies and like um, how that informs your identity and the things that you do. So it, yeah. It, I could I could edit this out if the question is too is too personal, but do you think okay. that, that some of that is maybe tied into the, the you know, your chronic illness your chronic disability oh definitely a lot <laughs> of that is um i i had these interests before actually i had fibromyalgia mm-hmm. but it, the fibromyalgia the fibromyalgia adds to it <laughs> like um i definitely my game body hack which is the cyberpunk one um that you mentioned it's a journaling game and um uh, it kind of has a lot of trans elements, like trans body elements, but also um, chronic illness elements of like just kind of how your body, inter- like how your body is, allows you to be in the world or how people perceive you based on kind of whatever your body is doing, right? Um, and fibromyalgia is a, an invisible illness. Like people can't look at me until I have that. Um, but it's hugely debilitating. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I've had people write to me, they played that game. They're like, this helped me understand my chronic illness better. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> I, I, I actually didn't think about that, but yes, that's true. <laughs> that, that body work, I think it's, it's, it's something they can explore and we're seeing some more exploration, more exploration of it with, you know, disability is becoming a, a bigger part of the the tabletop discourse um i spoke to i talked to jen kretzmer uh for candlekeep and we talked a lot about how you know disability can be represented in in tabletop games and um you know like for one of the big there's a really cool art piece in van richten's of a wheelchair user you know fighting off Mm -hmm. evil puppets um so a lot of this you know non-normative the non-normative bodies are the people who are have non-normative bodies are playing D and D and playing tabletop games, and so they're you know being represented for, which is great. <laughs> totally, yeah. I'm I'm really glad that it is being talked about more in games and in the culture in general, um, because so many people have a disability or are disabled um, in some way, and it's just kind of like not talked about. And um, you know, uh, but with body stuff in general, I mean the. 
horror and cyberpunk are two genres that, you know, focus on the body pretty intensely. Um, like you said, because in cyberpunk, how you can alter your body so much, but also how your body is like a weakness or a tool for the government or, um, you know, maybe you're not connected to your body anymore because what do your arms matter if you can replace them easily? Um, you know, art, do you recognize your body anymore? Like, you know, like that, um, was that movie with the two werewolf sisters, you know, and they're like, one of them is transforming into a werewolf, but it's like a metaphor for her getting her period oh, for the yeah. first time. Yeah, ginger snaps, I think. <laughs> ginger snaps, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she's like, why do I have a tail? This is weird. Okay, I kind of like it now, though. And, you know, it's like that kind of stuff where um, it's just so, I, I, that's part of why I'm drawn to those genres. And for games to not address them, I think is kind of silly. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 something that they really can't. I mean, even even tied into any sort of uh, even like high fantasy RPG, this you know the your the your character's body is like the most important thing. It's like the vehicle for all the adventure and stuff. And in many ways, similar to the way a, I think a cyberpunk game would examine examines it is that idea of almost commodifying your body. You know, your um, com- your you know you're commodifying your physical prowess or your mental ability and, and selling it. And that is, you know, part and parcel of a lot of the games that are played. That's really interesting. I never thought I'm, I'm less of a fantasy person, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, I do like some fantasy. It just never kind of spoke to me in the same way. It's cool to think about it that way. It kind of, it makes me more interested. (laughs) Like, like cyberpunk, you know, that's a big part of cyberpunk. You know, there's so much discussion of, you know, like, like sex work and, you know, people having their body parts sold and their organs sold and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, yeah. I, it, it's in, it'd be interesting to think about that from a, a different, from maybe from fantasy, which doesn't get into that as much as it probably could or should. Yeah, yeah. Especially, it makes me, it's, it's kind of why I like knights as kind of like a metaphor. Um, like, uh, you know, they're kind of just tools for the king or whatever. Um, and they're kind of doing, doing the bidding of like people above them. They have no control over it's a, it's a little, you know, corporate dystopia. Yeah. I mean, they say like, I mean, they say like the, the term you see a lot in like Game of Thrones is like someone who's a sell sword and like, yeah, you're selling your sword, but there's an arm attached to that sword and that arm is attached to a body, you know? And so that's, and that's who you're playing in like a game of D and D is you're playing a mercenary <laughs> most of the time. Yeah, well, and a sword is kind of like a tool or a piece of technology in cyberpunk. Like, in order to be a cyborg, you actually just have to have a tool that is an extension of your body. So, like, as a driver of a car, you're you're functionally a cyborg, right? So, like, as a person using a sword, like, that that could also fall into that metaphor. Well, there we go. Look out for fantasy cyberpunk coming. <laughs> <laughs> I love cyberpunk. It's uh, the first time I saw myself in a character was um, Major Kusanagi from uh, Ghost in the Shell. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah, I was just like, that's me. Like, first time I saw myself on screen, I was like, oh, I, th- this is my gender. <laughs> <laughs> and I think since then, like, cyberpunk has kind of this um, attachment to kind of like gender identity exploration. Um, what is your body? What does it mean to play these different roles, et cetera, et cetera, that I think are really potent in Ghost in the Shell. Ghost in the Shell is one of the best cyberpunk 
media to it's, exist. It's hard to. It's really hard to beat it, and it's it's the genre's gotten quite a quite a renaissance in the past you know past year or two. Um, you know, thanks to of course thanks to the video game, but yeah. Um, <laughs> That, well, I have that, feelings. I have feelings about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't. I haven't really liked any of the new cyberpunk that's come out. I. I think a lot of it kind of relies on, or leans heavy on old problematic tropes, that um, are like out of context and don't make sense anymore. Yeah, um, yeah. It's a. It's a very '80s genre. If you don't work, you know, if you just homage it, you just get stuck in the '80s, and it's hard. You gotta be willing to adapt it and willing to move it forward, and some people yeah, are kind of yeah, scared yeah. to do that. Yeah, it's like, oh, why do these cities still look Asian when there's not any context for why they look Asian, like there was in the eighties? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's kind of casually racist. Good job, guys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's that's yeah, totally. Um, I think Cyberpunk Red did a um, has done a decent night, did pretty good job. Um, oh, I haven't that. seen it yet, actually. Uh, I, I like Mike Pondsmith a lot. I like the old cyberpunk games, problems and all. Like, I think they're super fun. Yeah. I know Red did a, Red did a lot of... I mean, it's a lot. There's a lot of stuff in that. It's a, it's a big book. Um, but it's got a lot of interesting concepts. Because they are trying to, you know, to move it forward and, and have it address, you know, those questions of, of queer identity and, and uh, you know, minorities that... 80s cyberpunk didn't really touch on because it was still a genre kind of created and created by like white straight guys because that's who they were publishing at the time so <laughs> yeah i remember the first time uh, i i met mike pondsmith at a, a game convention and i was um, set to play cyberpunk with him um and i was like oh you're black that's awesome <laughs> like it kind of blew my mind, but uh, I think the best cyberpunk creators do come from marginalized groups. Um, you know, they, they have the sense of, like, um, uh, kind of, I feel like, the heart of what cyberpunk is actually about. It is about oppression um, and, uh, you know, corporate greed and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I think that the old cyberpunk tabletop role-playing games did pretty well with um, race and culture, but not as well with gender. Although they did have a strap on, which made me delighted as a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Sorry, I don't know if that's appropriate for your podcast. It's, it's fine. No, no, we're, we're very pro cyber strap here. Yeah, um. <laughs> <laughs> that was a delight. I was like, you could, you could switch. Uh, you know your your sexual organs. What with a with robot organs? That was like yeah, pretty mm -hmm. fun. And not to get too far up topic, but that's why people had so. That's why the video game was so controversial with so many people. Oh, um, yeah, the video game looks horrible. Be, well, yeah, well because it was it it had like no none of that marginalized voice behind it. It had yeah um, so much capitalist exploitation baked into its creation. Um, yeah. And it felt marketed to straight white, straight white guys, which yeah, absolutely you know, is never, never what you want. And so, uh, it you know, and it, and it tr tried to pretend that it was, you know, gonna play with gender, and then it didn't really in the way that it needed to. Um, 
Yeah. So yeah, it's just a whole mess. But uh, you know, you know, Mike Mike Pondsmith and Cyberpunk, the team at uh, at that company with Cyberpunk, are definitely are doing a bit better. I think. <laughs> That's cool. That kind of makes me want to check it out a little bit more. I, I had kind of passed it over because I was so angry about the video game, you know. Was, I think cyberpunk is one of the genres I care about the mo- like the most, and so I, I'm easily angered <laughs> by, the, <laughs> by the nonsense. I'll just, like, rage quit. Like, I rage quit Alter Carbon. I'm like, fuck this shit. <laughs> Although the second season of Alter Carbon is very good. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It, it stars um, Anthony Mackie. Um, oh, yeah. He's great. <laughs> yeah, and I haven't, I haven't um, had a chance to look at the Altered Carbon RPG yet, uh, just because it like came out at the same time as Cyberpunk Red. My brain was just kind of like <laughs> trying to filter everything out, and um, I've heard good things about it though too. So that's cool. I didn't know that existed. I'll have to yep. check that out. It's got uh, Erica Ishii on the cover. Uh, I don't know if you Oh, know. cool. Yeah. <laughs> she seems cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or they. I forget what. I, I, I hate to say it, but yeah, I, I can't remember. She might be a she yeah. guy. Um, I'm bad at remembering yeah. things. It's not because I don't care. I just have trouble remembering everything. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so I do want to talk a little bit. I want to transition a little bit. Um, I could talk about cyberpunk for, for days. Yeah, same. Um, <laughs> uh, but I do want to, maybe I'll have a cyberpunk episode someday and I can, you can come back and we can just talk about it for, for an hour yeah. and a half or whatever. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about just you. So you, you've done all that work with, with independent stuff and you've been working it for a long time. Um, but I think if this is your first work with, with, with D and D right. As a, as a designer working yeah, with Van Richten's. It absolutely is, yes. <laughs> so, what was it like getting, um, you know, I think that, you know, they, they do kind of a work-for-hire setup with, with, with Wizards, but what was it like kind of, you know, working with them? Um, it was, it was awesome, actually. Um, I, <laughs> I am admittedly not much of a, a player of D&D, <laughs> Um, I have played it, uh, but you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more into horror and sci-fi. Um, but this was horror D and D. So I'm like, okay. And I, and I love the old Ravenloft. Like I played that when I was a kid. Um, so it, it was really cool to be brought on to kind of like this iconic book. <laughs> and, and, um, uh, I had a great time working with the team. I mean, obviously the writers are amazing on this book. Um, I love all of them. And um, we were of like mind kind of of what we were writing, I think, and all experts in different ways, which is really cool. Uh, and the projects, I, I just kept kind of imagining like, okay, if I was 15, what would I want this scenario to be? <laughs> You know what I mean? Like a lot of a lot of players are a lot younger, and um, a lot of the tone of Ravenloft and D and D is just kind of trend a little bit younger, um, uh, and a little like it's horror, but it's not like David Lynch horror. It's like Castlevania horror, you know. <laughs> and so um, it was cool in that sense. It was very fun to come up with ideas um, that were just kind of totally out there and then kind of dial them back in and talk with people. Yeah. And so you worked on, you, so you primarily worked on, 
the horror genre portion of the book in one of the domains of dread, correct? Yes. And it was very fun doing the genres just because I'm yeah. so, I know horror so well. <laughs> yeah. Well, something that, you know, in my review, it was a big point of mine when I reviewed it. Um, and, and something that I think gets a little overlooked by people is obviously the big star of the show is the domains of dread. You know, there's 17 of them. They have so much detail. Um, but the part that really interested me was that part, the the creation of horror stories and the kind of deep like genre analysis that is a little bit weird for D&D. You know, it really got into the the nitty-gritty of you know, the different genres like dark cosmic horror, ghost stories, dark fantasy, gothic, um that was really, really interesting. Yeah, it was It was kind of a decided upon goal to make this book accessible for people to create their own stuff. Um, kind of like a tool, right? Like a useful tool instead of just like a lot of fiction. Um, and I think that the genre section and the build your own domain section really, really push that idea forward. And I think that's very indie. <laughs> It's very, it's a very like indie con. It's very like powered by the apocalypse, right? Like here's an example, but here's all the tools that you need to build your own. Yeah. Um, and and here's how you can use genres like traditional genres of horror mm-hmm. um, in this type of game um, specifically, not just like what they are, but like how you can utilize them. That, that was super fun to do. It, it's a really, I think it's a, almost the most power that I've seen them give a, a like a dm um in this edition with um how much you can create it kind of lets you play in a it's a smaller playground but it gives you so many options yeah i i i've seen dnd i mean ever since 5e um kind of shift and um utilize a lot of the same concepts and tools that small press and indie game designers have been using for a while now um, and it, so it's kind of like shifting, it's, it seems like maybe they'll shift away for this in the next edition, who knows, but like shifting into that, that kind of play, which is, which is rad. I mean, that's my favorite kind of play. And did you find yourself bringing that sensibility from your experience into, into the book? I mean, yeah, of course. <laughs> 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 like I, my one of the reasons I, this is like the fourth time I've said Power by the Apocalypse, but it is one of my favorite game systems. And it's because it makes it so easy to run. Um, like as a GM and an, uh, an older person who has less time, um, as someone who wants to just kind of pick up and go and not like spend, you know, a month preparing a game, um, you know, that system and those tools really lend themselves themselves to that type of play. It makes it easy for a GM to run a game. And that's like what I want. That's like my game preference. <laughs> like I want a game that's like, here's the checklist of the things that you must do as a GM. Okay, go. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think I think uh, yeah, Power by the Apocalypse is a lot of a lot of small press indie games have been doing that for about you know for ten years now. Pretty, I feel like each iteration becomes easier and easier. And new games that I see from younger younger people coming out, you know, in the itchio design. Um, aesthetics and cadre of people who are selling on there, um, 
just kind of refining that even more and more, which is super cool. And then like, you know, the um, small, small um, like poem games or lyric games um, remind me a lot of, you know, freeform experimentations during the Golden Cobra competitions, you know, five years ago. So it's just kind of like iter iterating all these concepts. And I think eventually like that culture kind of bleeds, bleeds into, you know, the D&D, the, the biggest thing, right? Yeah. I mean, my, my, my background is in, is in, is in traditional, you know, writing, um, you know, fiction and stuff. So it's, it's an interesting watching how some of that kind of reflects the, um, almost the way publishing works, you know, the way that we're seeing like the experimental end of, of, of fiction, of short stories and flash and poetry and stuff, um, is, is affecting that's been popular for years now, but it's finally getting like a really good publishing thing. It's, it's mirrored in, in tabletop publishing, which is fascinating to me. Yeah. It's, I see that in film and in, in TV and in, in visual art too. I think it's, I think it's just like kind of in creative fields that eventually happens. <laughs> um, yeah, it's cyclical. I'm sure some 30, 40 years ago, people were saying the same stuff about other stuff, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, now, the other thing that I liked about those the the genres and it's something that people other people pointed out obviously was they also made a point to mention the sort of the pitfalls of of the genres of things like marginalized mm. people being othered into horror or um, yeah. you know the way disabled people are you know used as um, as props for 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 horror a lot. Um, which I think uh, was again a surprise to people, but I think just reflects that influence of, you know, writers who are conscientious of it, like you, and just the greater zeitgeist of tabletop. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, those are. I love horror because I also have seen myself in horror, and you know, it horror as a genre actually features a lot of marginalized people. Like there's been queer people, trans people, um, you know, disabled people, people with mental illness, um, in all different kinds of um, cultures and ethnicities of people in horror for, you know, since the beginning. Like that's, that's, that's a lot of the concept behind it, you know, like mm -hmm. the, the original, um, what, you know, not Walking Dead movie, but the original zombie movie, right? Um, the George Romero. <laughs> Social horror. It's a thing. Um, and so to see, you know, to see that just reflected in it, I think is really important. I think even even some other horror games do this okay. Like, I, I do think a lot of World of Darkness, um, for its time, uh, did a lot of that and tried to do a lot of that. Um, you know, looking back at it, there's huge gaps and, and problems. But... Um, you know, it represented the goth culture at the time and we were outsiders and queer and weird. And, you know, that, that's kind of the metaphor of the old vampire games. And so, so yeah, I don't, I don't remember as much in Ravenloft, the old Ravenloft, if that was true, honestly, um, looking over, I had to, I had to rewrite an old domain, which was a hilarious delight. <laughs> it was very, very problematic. Um, <laughs> Uh, but you know, old, old stuff. Um, so, 
just looking at the comparison of like what we're doing now in games in general, it's like so much better. And and I think Raven, the new Van Richten's guide takes it a step further. So that, so you mentioned it just now, cause that's the other thing that you worked on. The other big part of the game uh, was the, um, the domain of, it, it's heavily French. So is it supposed to be Demolu? Or... Oh, Dementlieu. Dementlieu. Okay. So it's not that French. Um, <laughs> that's, what, that's how I read it anyway. I don't know. No, that's, I, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's all fake, you know, it's whatever. Um, yeah. You know, no one from there is going to come get mad at me, I hope. It um, might be Dementlieu. You might be right. I, you know, it's, it's, we'll have to, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe I'll, I'll go bug, um, <laughs> I'll go bug someone from the D&D D and D team. I'll go tweet at Chris Perkins or somebody. And how and do you pronounce sure. this? That would that would be a funny Twitter conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think it's a real word either. But um, yeah, I, I did take two years of French. Maybe the T is silent. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you worked on on that, um, which was actually it. You you mentioned that, and I got kind of excited because it's probably one of my favorite domains in the book, um, because it's. It's such a well. First of all, it feels very, it's very Edgar Allan Poe, which I'm a massive sucker for. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's just a, such a fun thing, and so it was something that you updated, right? Yeah, yeah. So how did that? What was that process like? Updating it from? You mentioned there were some problematic things. Yeah. Well, it was it was definitely a collaboration. I mean. Um, I was given it and they're like, do you think you can do something different with this? And I'm like nodding to myself. Okay. <laughs> like, like I think that, oh gosh, the old one has so many problems. It was like, you know, this huge grotesque fat man. Uh, it's this fat, like hugely fat phobic villain. And like, um, you know, uh, like had sex workers or a harem or something. Uh, you know, they were trying to make it, it's supposed to be making fun of Paris. Like it's like kind of Parisian setting. Right. So like, you know, gluttony and evil, evil Paris type concepts. Um, and my favorite evil Paris concepts are a little more Belle Epoque. They're like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a little King in Yellow style horror or, um, you know, Marie Antoinette's, you know, the disconnect from the high class to the low class. And, um, so I kind of added a lot of those concepts, um, and, uh, it's actually, the domain is, is, has shifted a bit since, from what I wrote. I know there's, there's a lot of collaborators on these books, so they have different goals and, um, you know, kind of different directions they want to take it. Uh, but it ended up being a little bit more fairy tale than I had originally designed. Um, mine was a little bit more Marie Antoinette-ish. But it still ended up a lot of the concepts kind of remain intact. And that the idea of like, um, you know, the upper class taking advantage of and disenfranchising the lower classes as part of a horror scenario in a, in a Parisian city is pretty potent. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's why I love horror as uh, we've, we've talked, you've talked about it. And I'm, you know, I love horror as a, as a message, as a medium for Metaf- as a medium for messages and, and analysis of of different things and uh you know that's that that genre you know that 
King in Yellow or like the, you know, the way Poe wrote about um, urban settings, that Gothicism is very much rooted in those contradictions and the horrors that come from such a huge, you know, a gap in exploitation. Um, and it just felt very well realized on the page. Um, <laughs> and having that that sense, it, it's 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 horror, but it's such a fun form of horror because it's not, yeah, it's not using like weird, yeah, like weird fat villain, and it's not being <laughs> right. super gross. It's horrific in like a visceral, like everything is too colorful, everything is too overdone, everything is too much. Um, right. It, it's 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 a hard it's a hard thing to do though. You know, because it's so easy to fall yeah. back on those, those on so easy to fall back on body horror or fall back on you know that kind of thing. Well, some of my favorite horror is the psychological kind. You know, it is the David Lynch. You know, is what I'm looking at real? Is every can I trust my own senses? Um, can I trust the people around me? What what does it mean? to be embroiled in these cultures that are so empty and meaningless and that are, you know, exploiting other people. And what is, what is the horror actually behind that of like people who act and look very beautiful and, and, you know, have all of the nice things, but at what cost, right? And how are they suffering? And, and I think the best villains are the ones that we, I mean, the villains that I love are the ones that think they're doing the right thing. Right. I think making compelling villains um, is important in in horror. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of one of the undercurrents of of the um, of the book as well as you know the um, the different domains aren't aren't just um, about the settings; they're about the dark lords. Um, you know, with with uh, this one, the focus being you know. The Red Death side that I do on there, um, and yeah, her, and her just completely, you know, whole messed up view on life and being, you <laughs> yeah. know, being the Duchess and and uh, being a wraith and how she balances being like, you know, a society grand dame and also being like a serial killer. <laughs> she's just very. I mean, they're all very cool, but you know, she's again, yeah. she's a very cool one herself. It's very compelling um, characters to, to learn how characters become villains. Um, I think I think another good key element of a good villain, and, and it's it's cool to kind of learn about them in the Dark Lord sections in Van Richten's Guide to, to Ravenloft because it humanizes them in this way that makes monsters not completely e- evil for the sake of evil. Um, which I think is another problematic horror trope that you see, or trope in general that you see a lot in games where, you know, be- monsters are just evil. Just You just need to murder them. Or, you know, villains are just evil. They're, you know, there's obviously no good reason they're doing these things. Um, so making more complex villains makes more compelling horror. Uh, and, and it doesn't just um, demonize monsters who are often metaphors for marginalized folks. Yeah. I mean, that's... That's why Strahd is such an iconic character, and he's yeah. such a, you know, why he got a huge book to himself, and why he's gotten another book, and why he's a huge star in this one, um, 
and has become an icon, you know, on the level of, you know, characters like Drizzt because he's a villain. He's a very, very good, he's a bad guy, but he's a person and he's someone who you, you know, connect with for a lot of things. Yeah. I think when you can understand how a villain becomes a villain, especially if it's just a matter of life circumstances, mm-hmm. you can understand how like you could easily that could easily happen to you too. I think that that adds a level a level of horror. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it's 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 that it's examining that line that people get to, and people are you know, you know, you're not supposed to cross it, but you know it's there. And yeah. you're always kind of worried that you're going to cross it and then you're going to be that, that monster, you know, and it might not be, you know, we're not going to cross a line and become uh, a vampire in a castle ruling over a foggy, you know, part of, you know, the world. But I mean, maybe that could be fun, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> 2021, the year of vampires. <laughs> if we saw, if we saw that line, maybe we'd cross it more if that were the outcome, but <laughs> true facts. Oh, the castle with beautiful mists surrounding it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wearing capes, having dinner. It's it's fine. You know what? I, I'm cool with that. We'll go with yeah, that. Yeah, that's a good life. Uh, <laughs> the, good, the good on life. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, obviously, if you haven't, if, you know, listeners, if you haven't checked out the book, I really, really encourage it. Um, there's a lot of really cool stuff in there. Um, you know, the stuff that Kira worked on obviously is fantastic, but there's so many talented writers, um, involved. Um, so, you know, definitely go check that out. And we, you know, Kira, we could talk about, again, I said to about cyber, what about horror? I could talk about horror <laughs> for days with everybody. Um, unfortunately, um, that's not super doable. So we're getting close to, uh, close to the end. So I wanted to, um, ask a bit about what you're, you know, what you're working on right now. You just, uh, kickstarted, uh, mm-hmm. what was it? It was called fly free, I believe. Fly softly. Fly softly. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Is there anything else that you've got that you've got that you might be publishing soon that we should keep an eye out for? Yeah. Well, that's my, that is my, um, my own project. So that's my self-publishing project. Um, and then I'm, you know, I'm working on other projects always, all the time. I just finished, um, five sword and sorcery scenarios for, um, what was the game? Savage Sisters was the name of the game. It was kind of like this red Sonia style, um, like feminist sword and sorcery game, uh, by, yeah, gosh, fifth level, I think. Um, that, is a delight. Um, so that should be coming out soon. Um, I just put out a reprint of something is wrong here. So the first print ran out, which is amazing. Um, so that's back up at IPR and I'm also working on, uh, what else am I working on? Oh, I'm working on this game, um, fantasy world, which is kind of a redesign stripped down and easy version of Apocalypse World that's a tool to kind of build fantasy games with. Um, it's Italian. And so it comes from the Italian indie design team, uh, uh, culture, which is super awesome. If you don't know anything about it, check it out. Um, and there's, there's kind of some cross pollination between like the U S and the Italian scenes. They overlap in lots of interesting ways and there's cool Italian games. They translate things all the time. Um, 
And uh, so I'm going to do a scenario for that. I'm torn. I have to decide my scenario this week. I'm torn. It's either it's either going to be um, children of spiteful gods scenario or a Arthurian folk horror scenario. Oh, that's, so that's those are some very fantastic words put together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm just like I have a lot of ideas of things I want to make right now. I'm just kind of like, which one do I pick next? Type of thing. Um, and I do want to finish by the end of the year. We'll see how that goes, depending on how um, quickly I kind of finish up Fly Softly. I have a cyberpunk game in the works um, that I've had in the works for years called Sync. Um, it is also powered by the apocalypse. It is like an emotional uh, activist, like um, uh, relational cyberpunk game. It's 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 not. Um, there's no guns. Like you don't fight mm. in it. It's all t- it's all like tech and feelings. So it kind of kind of feels a little bit like um, like Mr. Robot or Hackers or um, like some other touchstones, kind of like that, where you're just kind of an ordinary person. How do you fight these huge corporations? Okay. Yeah. That's very cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, you do have a lot of irons in the fire. That's oh yeah, very exciting <laughs> and. We'll definitely keep an eye out for all of that. And I'll, of course, be linking to everything that you have out or about to be out. Um, Thank you. Down below. Uh, and if we wanted to keep an eye on what you're working on, where can we find you online? Oh, yeah. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. It's probably the easiest way to keep up. Um, that's at Kira Serpentine. Um, and I do have a Patreon as well, which kind of supports my independent work while I'm doing other freelance work as well. So that kind of helps me make the game, helps me make my games. Um, uh, yeah, those two places are probably the best. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about your work and, you know, geeking out about cyberpunk and horror and all the, you know, darker parts of the human 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 condition (laughs) yeah thanks so much for the great conversation this has been a delight thanks again for listening to all bark no dice the vanity metals tabletop talk show as always we are fueled by found familiar coffee company go to found familiar use the code fandom to get 15 percent off your entire order and if you want give us a little shout out on itunes or podchase or wherever you're listening five-star review really helps a lot thank you so much and happy rolling